Good morning. I decided to bring some water with me this morning because I'm not usually talking for a half an hour. I just, I'm not used to that. Um, this morning is part two of my sermon series, uh, which concludes today. So it's a sermon series of two. Um, and so I, it is a continuation of uh, Confession of Faith, Article 22, uh, Peace and Non-Resistance. And last week we looked at scripture that supported my case for biblical pacifism. Jesus teaching us to love our enemies is very clear and consistent in his hard and difficult teaching, but it is clear. Now I will admit that this is, this is a part of me that desires a justification for the use of a weapon, especially if my family or those who I love would be threatened. So don't let me, speaking about this, give you any impression that Dwayne's got this all under control and he's going to follow this uh, line by line. Um, this is a hard teaching and it goes against my very nature and impulse that I have when threatened. If I do not prepare my heart and mind for something like this in advance, there's just no way I would be able to be strong in the heat of the moment. When temptations, testing, and persecution comes, we all want and desire to be strong in our faith and we want to please Christ and not deny Him. That's an important to be thinking about these things well in advance. So this morning, the first thing I want, the thing I want to do is, is, is kind of a cross-examination. I have entitled it Cross-Examination of Biblical Pacifism. So how do Christians justify violence in any type of lethal force? And I, this is what I call the whatabouts. Well, what about this? What about this? So the first whatabout that I want to present this morning um, is um, one that is found in, Rome, or, uh, in Luke 22. Jesus tells the disciples to buy swords. This is a very popular argument, and it claims that Jesus tells his disciples to buy a sword to defend themselves. Therefore, self-defense is something Jesus not only allows us to do, but he has encouraged it. Again, the passage is found in Luke 22. It was in the, at the Last Supper. He's meeting with his disciples and celebrating the Passover with them. And he says, starting in verse 35, And he said to them, When I sent you out without money, a money belt and a bag or sandals, you did not lack anything, did you? And they said, No, nothing. And he said to them, But now, whoever has money, a money belt, is to take it along, likewise also a bag or a knapsack. And whoever has no sword is to sell his coat and buy one. For I tell you that this which is written must be fulfilled in me. He and he who was numbered with the transgressors, transgressors, for that which refers to me has its fulfillment. And they said, Lord, look, here are two swords. And he said to them, that is enough. I found this to be a very popular argument to support self-defense, as permitted and, and supposedly even directed by Christ. In the context of this passage, Jesus is referring to a previous time when he sent the disciples out in Matthew 10, 1 through 16. The argument is that what is implied here is that things were going to be different, and from now on they needed a sword for self-defense. So now Jesus instructs them to buy a sword if they do not have one. However, that's not exactly what Jesus says here at all. We need to be very careful to read what it actually says and not what we think it says. And I believe verse 37 
is critically important in understanding why Jesus makes this request to buy a sword. Verse 37 says very clearly the reason for purchasing sword was to fulfill a prophecy. Uh, being numbered with transgressors, and it's found in Isaiah 53:12. The word for connects the previous sentence, which gives explanation as to why there's a need to buy the sword. If Jesus is saying they needed swords for self-defense, he may have said, for now you'll need them for protection, but he doesn't. He states, for I tell you that this which is written must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with transgressors, for that which refers to me has its fulfillment. Anomos is the Greek word used here for transgressors. It means lawless, wicked, a disregard for authorities. Swords helped fulfill that prophecy that he was numbered with transgressors or lawless criminals. Having a money belt or a bag does not make you a criminal, but being in possession of a sword uh, does kind of tend to connect you with lawless criminals. When the disciples responded to him, to say, hey, we have two swords. Jesus responds back, that is enough. That was enough to satisfy the fulfilling of prophecy, but hardly enough to adequately defend all of them. I mean, at least 10 out of the 12 disciples could have said, oh, why does Peter get to have the sword? What am I, chopped liver? I mean, the, the, am I expendable? What's the deal? There's only two swords and that's enough. Also, acquiring swords had to only be symbolic in nature because in the verse 49 of the same chapter, literally only hours after Jesus makes this request for swords, Jesus rebukes Peter, Peter for using one of them. Jesus, or Peter, in his attempt to defend Jesus from being arrested against overwhelming odds, anywhere from 300 to 600 soldiers, draws a sword and cuts off the ear of the slave of the high priest. And then, just hours after that, standing before Pilate, Jesus says this. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting, so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. There was never any intention of these swords ever being used for protection, self-defense, or war. Jesus states very plainly and specifically that they were simply acquired to fulfill a prophecy. There is no other reason given by Jesus for the purpose of these swords. They were simply props. So am I wrong and, and the use of the swords for self-defense was directed by Jesus? Is there anything that contradicts this interpretation? Are there any examples of any use of the sword in self-defense? Either, um, either by the disciples or Jesus, or, any, or throughout any of the New Testaments. I just mentioned Peter's use of the sword that Jesus immediately rebuked. The disciples would have had plenty of additional opportunities where their lives would be threatened and would be killed, yet there is absolutely no account of any use of a sword being used for self-defense or amassing swords to defend the, the apostles or believers whose lives were in danger. In fact, there are no such teachings by the apostles and early church fathers for the next 300 years until Constantine made Christianity the state religion of Rome. That's when we see the development of just war theory. 
The early church fathers had much to say about Christians participating in war, and it was all negative and prohibited military service. There is not one quote from the early church fathers, apostle or Christ himself, that promotes any support for violence whatsoever. Justin Martyr, an early church father who lived from 100 to 165, says this, We who formerly used to murder one another do not only now refrain from making war upon our enemies, but also that we may not lie or deceive our examiners, willing to die confessing Christ. And we who were filled with war and mutual slaughter and every wickedness have each through the whole earth changed our warlike weapons, our swords into plowshares and our spears into implements of tillage. And we cultivate, and we cultivate piety. <clears throat> Tertullian, who lived from 150 to 230 AD, says, Under no circumstances should a true Christian draw the sword. Origen says, We have come into accordance with the counsel of Jesus to cut down our arrogant thorns of swords of argument into plowshares, and we convert into sickles the spears we formerly used in fighting. For we no longer take swords against nation, nor do we learn any more to take, make war, having become sons of peace for the sake of Jesus, who is, Lord, who is our Lord. Christians are not allowed to kill, but they must be ready to put death, be put to death themselves. It is not permitted the guiltless to put even the guilty to death. The first church council, the Council of Nicaea, which took place in 325 AD, which was the representing the whole church at that time, and oddly enough, Constantine himself put it together. And in, the, in this, the statements that came out of the, church, uh, the Council of Nicaea, in Canon 12, they were divided into different statements. Well, one of the statements, Canon 12 is what it's entitled, says this, As many as were called by grace and displayed the first zeal, having cast aside their military belts, but afterwards returned like dogs to their own vomit, so that some spent money by means of gifts against their military station. Let these, after they have passed the space of three years as hearers, be for ten years prostrators. The wording of this at the end there is a little confusing, but basically what it says, if you rejoin the military, you were going to be excommunicated from the church and given ten years to repent. Now again, this is the early church leaders as a whole. This was who represented the church and this was their feeling of military service. As I said before, for the first 300 years of the church, every writing about military service was negated, negative and prohibited. These were people in some cases who were under the teaching of the apostles themselves. There is not one writing that expresses military service as serving as, or serving as a magistrate, a government official, positively nor are there any writings that would challenge this position or say that it was heretical or a false misinterpretation. So what changed? Why did the church change its position on military service? Constantine made Christianity the state religion of Rome. How could a government survive if all of its citizens are pacifists? This doctrine could not continue to be what the church taught and be the state religion. Just war theology was then developed over a period of time to justify Christians' use of the sword. It's an attempt to reconcile the kingdom of God with the kingdom of this world. 
They are not compatible. Jesus never intended for physical swords to be used against our enemies, and using this passage to justify self-defense is just a misreading of that scripture. Acquiring swords was only to fulfill prophecy. Okay, the next argument I have here is soldiers were never told to leave the military, so how can it be wrong? These, there's passages found in Matthew 8 on the account of a centurion who wanted healing for his servant, to which Jesus honors his request and heals his servant, but never rebukes his position in the military. There's an account in Acts 10, 1 through 48, of the account of Cornelius, a centurion that Peter ministers to, which concludes by Cornelius becoming a Christian and his whole house, household baptized. Um, there was nothing suggesting that he was asked to volunteer, voluntarily leave his military position. And Luke 7, 1 through 10, is another account of a centurion wanting healing for a slave to which Jesus heals. Again, there's no rebuke or criticism of, his, of this centurion's position. Now, I have to admit, this is one of the questions about this that I had a problem with. Jesus didn't tell, I mean, I, mean, I questioned this myself. And so until someone pointed out that Jesus didn't tell every sinner to repent, or at least it wasn't recorded in every, in every instance. For example, the woman at the well was not told to repent and leave her current situation of living with a man that was not her husband. Should we conclude that because Jesus said nothing about living together unmarried is, is an acceptable behavior? Zacchaeus repented all on his own. He was not instructed or condemned or shamed into doing so. The assumption is that believers did leave their sin or soldiers did leave the military, at least served in some non-combative military position. I recognize that this is an argument from silence and, can be, and cannot credibly be used to defend the position, but I could say the same for the opposing assertion. It is an argument from silence. Now there is one place in the New Testament that this, that this question is asked specifically, and it's found in Luke 3, 14, and it's an account of soldiers who have been baptized by John the Baptist, and they ask John, what should they do? And John responds to them saying, saying this in verse 14 of Luke 3. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. Now, John the Baptist is part of the New Testament. However, he is still teaching from under the Old Covenant. He is considered the last of the prophets. He would have the same understanding that any Old Testament prophet would have had prior to Jesus' ministry. So he would not know the kingdom of heaven teachings that Jesus eventually teaches. There is no reason to believe John would have any understanding of the gospel of Jesus to instruct these soldiers to do anything different and in fact, John asks if Jesus was the Messiah or if they should look for another because he was expecting something different. Even after baptizing Jesus and hearing the voice of God saying, this is my son, John does not know many of the specifics about the kingdom of heaven that Jesus is teaching about. And we find in Acts that John's baptism was not sufficient for salvation. That's not what his ministry is about. Jesus did show us that we should respect those in the military. How does, however, don't misunderstand respect and honor 
with blessing and approval. If silence is the justification for Christians to participate in war, then that means this theology is totally based on silence, not an explicit statement to support it. Silence does not have the authority to contradict a clear teaching. Okay, what about Paul saying governing authorities are God's servants? If governing, the, the argument goes, if governments are God's servant, then we as God's children should hold government positions and actively serve in the military. To serve in the military is to be God's servant. But what does this passage actually say and what does it not say? So let's look at Romans 13, verses 1 through 7. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves, for rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear, the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended, for the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment to the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This is also why you should pay taxes, for authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. The argument is that if governing authorities are God's servants, then we as Christians who are God's servants should serve in these positions because... It is a godly position. Or that when we serve in these positions, it is a godly act of service. The Greek word here translated to servant is diakonos. Strong's Greek Dictionary Commentary defines this word to mean a waiter, a servant, anyone who performs any service. It is where the word deacon comes from. In other words, the argument is made that working in a government position and serving in the military is no different than one serving in a position in the church as a deacon serving God, making these actions just. However, Paul is writing this while living under a Roman governing authority, a very pagan nation and government. The emperor was recognized as a god that was to be worshipped. The emperor believed to be in power at this time was Nero, a merciless persecutor of Christians. It is in this context that Paul includes Nero, the Roman government, as God's servant. I would submit to you that there was no government at this time, that was, that this, in the time that this was written, whose leaders were considered actual Christian servants of God who feared him or obeyed him, yet Paul calls them God's servant. In this context, Paul is not using servant as it pertains to the church. He is referring to the government, a secular pagan institution. For example, sometimes even today's positions in government, we use the word minister as a title such as minister of defense. 
a minister of transportation. They are not ministers as the church uh, recognizes them and in that context. In the context, they are servants of the government. Who else has God named his servants? In Jeremiah 43.10, we say Nebuchadnezzar is described as God's servant. It says, Then say to them, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says, I will send for my servant Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and I will set his throne over these stones I have buried here, and he will spread his royal canopy upon them. In Jeremiah 27, 5 through 7, he says, Now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. He calls Cyrus in Isaiah 45, Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus. So he calls Cyrus his anointed. He calls in uh, Isaiah 10, he lists Syria as one of his servants. Listen how th this is uh, very captivating is how he describes Assyria here. Isaiah 10, 5 through 16, but I'll just read the first part. Woe to Syria, the rod of my anger, the staff of their hands, is my fury against the godless nation. I send him, and against the people of my wrath, I command him to take spoil and seize plunder and to tread them down like the mire in the streets. But he does not so intend. In his heart, and his heart does not so think, but it is in his heart to destroy and cut off nations. For, he's, for anyway, that's, I, th I find that interesting that Assyria not only intentionally carried out God's wrath, they were just doing what their evil hearts had desired, which was to conquer and destroy. God directed and allowed them to do it for his benefit and then punishes them for what they did. I like this proverb. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Governing authorities are servants of God, not because they love God and desire to serve him. They are his servants because God is sovereign and he uses governing authorities to accomplish his will, regardless of their submission, loyalty, or allegiance to him. Killing the enemy under the supervision and authority of the government does not mean killing is just, right, or good. For example, we see this very thing being played out in Jesus' conversation with Pilate. When Jesus says, well, Pilate says first, will you not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Pilate was told that he has no authority unless given to him by God. He carried out the most evil act in history. He crucified God's own son, an innocent man. God used the evil actions of the government authority to carry out his sovereign plan. God is in control of all governing authorities. They are his servants. Pilate was a servant of God, but he will also be judged for his evil. Another example is that God used the Babylonian and Assyrian empires to bring judgment to Israel and Judah, and then turns around and punishes them for conquering God's covenant people. Again, participating in military under a government as God's servant does not mean your actions of killing are sanctioned by God and will escape judgment, nor is it an exception to loving your enemy. God doesn't need help to accomplish anything. 
Over and over again, we see in Scripture God uses even evil kings, nations, and people to accomplish his judgment and will. This Scripture in Romans is recognizing God's authority and sovereign power over nations. Paul gives no indication that Christians should be involved with governing authorities whatsoever. In fact, Paul says God has set up governments for your good and found there in verse 4. It is an entity that God has set up for mankind for his good, but it is an entity for us, not one that the Christian is directed to participate in. Paul only recognizing and describing the role they play under God's sovereign command. The only prescriptive things Paul is telling us to do here in Romans 13 is to submit, do what is right, pay taxes, honor and respect the government. Peter is also consistent with Paul. And we see in, in 1 Peter, 2 Peter, no, 1 Peter 2, 13 through 17. He is very consistent with, with Paul. Submit yourself to the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor or, the, or as, as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and commend those who do right. For it is God, God's will, that by doing good you shall silence the ignorant. Talk of foolish people. Live as free people. Do not use your freedom as cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. The point of this passage is focused on submission to authority. It is amazingly similar to Paul's instructions. Submit, do right, respect, and honor. No matter how evil or good this authority is, it does not conflict with God's commands. If it does not conflict with God's commands, we are to submit as Christ was our example. Jesus was not a political activist trying to bring about social justice by earthly means. He submitted himself to the evil intent of the Pharisees and the Roman government, which resulted in his cruel death. We are called to this same submission. Nebuchadnezzar, Assyria, Cyrus, Pharaoh, Pilate, Joseph brothers, anyone and everyone are God's servant that carry out his sovereign will in this world, regardless of their desire to disobey, disobey please him, or devotion to him. God is in control of it all. The government carries out God's judgment on those who do evil. However, we are not to be participants in carrying out that judgment. For example, when Christ has been beaten and falsely accused, hung on the cross, spit on and mocked, did he call out for justice or judgment? No, he asked God to forgive them, just as Stephen did while he was being stoned. Another point I wanted to point out about Romans 13. I think it's also important to look at the context that Romans 13 is in. Paul is giving instructions on how the Christian should live in Romans 12. So if we look at the, the verses leading up to Romans 13 and at the end of Romans 12, Romans 12, 17, 18 through 21, Repay no one evil for evil, but take thought for what is noble in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all, beloved. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. No, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him drink. For, so, for by so doing, you heap burning coals on his head. 
Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. In verse 19, Paul says, never avenge yourselves. Avenge is translated from the Greek word ekdekeo, which is a verb which means give justice or defend or dispense justice, carry out judgment completely through. So we have never dispense justice or carry out judgment. Paul continues, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. The word vengeance is translated from the Greek word ekadeus, which is a noun from the same form of the word ekadeos. So these are basically the same words. When we go to Romans 13, Paul writes, for he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Paul uses the same Greek word, ekadeos, as an adjective here. So here in Romans, Paul says we are to live peaceably with all, never avenge ourselves. That would mean the church, left on its own, would become victims and taken advantage of from all kinds of people. The threat of retaliation is a large part of what keeps the peace between enemies. This is how the world and the kingdoms of this world respond to each other. The threat of an avenging military does a great deal to keep threatening neighboring countries from attacking. However, Paul is saying we are to respond differently than the world. So if we are not to participate in vengeance and are to live peaceably, how will this work? Paul continues, Romans 13 goes on to say, I have created governments for this very reason, for your good. God has made a provision, a protection for the church, and it is government. We have just been commanded to have to not avenge in chapter 12. God does the avenging. He carries out vengeance and wrath through governments as his tool, his servant. There is nothing that Paul says there that suggests that the church, that the church are to be participating as this servant. And in fact, the preceding verses in chapter 12 would exclude us from doing so. In Romans 13, the government is written in as the third person. There is no connection made to the church. God has commanded us not to avenge ourselves and to live peaceably with everyone. God has set up governments to do the avenging and execute judgment on his behalf for us. As Paul says, for your good. I don't believe Romans 13 makes any claim that we should participate in government roles, especially as it involves military. Paul simply states that the role of government plays is under the authority of God. He uses government to accomplish order, justice, his vengeance, and judgment. That's a lot. So I, that was, that's a difficult one to take. And it's hard to, to process all that. The next section of whatabouts, we're running out of time, and I don't have time to go into all of them specifically. However, I realize that it's just they're all the same argument. For Hitler, the argument is the same evil is so egregious it requires Christians to take action, to go to war, to protect the innocent and repel evil. There must be an exception. For the murderous home invader, the argument is very similar. How is it loving to allow harm to come to loved ones? There must be an exception. Now, I admit the biblical response to these arguments do not satisfy most people, and I'm pretty sure they 
I have a hard time satisfying myself sometimes. But this is what I think makes the teachings of commands of Christ so radical and so countercultural and frankly difficult to accept. I've already presented what Jesus and the apostles said about violence last week. So based on these scriptures, quite simply, we are commanded to love and pray for them. There is no offer, they offer no exceptions. Well, it's that simple, right? Well, obviously not, otherwise we wouldn't be having this conversation. Again, Jesus did not offer any exceptions for loving our enemies. The people that heard him speak would have understood the enemy to include Rome as much as those who hated them personally or nationally. For most people, the response of just loving and praying for them equates to doing nothing. It may not be the answer that satisfies us, but it's the answer Jesus gives. Others don't really care what Scripture says because the words of Jesus seem totally inadequate in addressing the problem of evil. To do anything other than drawing a sword is unacceptable, cowardly, and irresponsible, even unloving. There are those who would go as far as to say that to not draw the sword in this situation would be sin and that pacifism is heretical. I know this because I've been called a heretic for this teaching. So were the early Anabaptists. In fact, I saw a movie just recently where the main character said, the Bible says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. But I just didn't have that kind of time. It was an article, there was an article that was given to me by a friend that I, that I thought used very popular arguments against pacifism. We live in a fallen world, sadly, and there are people that seek to destroy the will of God and his creation. This is unacceptable on all levels, and we are not asked to turn the other cheek when evil seeks to destroy us. I would ask, where does Scripture give an exception to turn the other cheek? Evil exists, and the Bible does not teach us to hide or cower from it. We are not taught to turn away from evil, nor are we expected to give in to it. Rather, we are taught to protect the weak, to stand strong against evil and fight the righteous fight. Do you believe Jesus would want you to sit aside and wait when your fellow Christians are being relentlessly attacked or led to sin by evil? Now, I agree with that totally, but how do we respond that doesn't contradict Jesus' commands? These quotes appeal to our emotion and logic and resonate with us. They appeal to our sense of justice. They, they make sense to us. I like the idea of taking charge. I don't want to be everybody's doormat. I don't want to be regarded as a sheep to the slaughter. I want evil men like Hitler to be eliminated. I want no harm to come to my family, the innocent or the weak. It seems logical that these situations are exceptions to loving my enemy. Isn't it reasonable to conclude that Jesus did not mean loving and praying for the Praying for these situations. Praying seems to be very insufficient act, a very insufficient action. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. So, however, these views do not have biblical source, nor are they consistent with the kingdom of heaven 
that Jesus taught. There are no words spoken by Jesus that can found to justify the use of violence as a response to, to any evil. Jesus' words and commands contradict all these arguments and actions. As Christians, we are called to action. The disagreement is what that action actually is. Jesus teaches love and sacrifice. I would argue that as Christians, we must start with Scripture and the teaching commands of Jesus before we can address what to do about evil. So the question about Hitler and the murderous intruder or the mass shooter is answered before the question is asked. There are other arguments that are made to challenge biblical pacifism that I didn't have time to address. I tried to address the most popular ones. And if you have any questions about other arguments or disappointed that I didn't cover the one that you wanted to have answered, I would uh, just uh, be happy to talk with you about it. I'm still searching. I'm still looking for a meaningful scripture-based argument that would contradict biblical pacifism. How do I wrap this up? What are some the, of the many scriptures, what could I use to conclude this message? And I decided to go back to Romans 12, and starting in verse 13. Bless are those who persecute you. Bless, do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, or leave it, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now this passage is easily understood. It's simple to read, but it is hard to live out. There is more that I could say today, but I guess I'm going to rest my case for biblical pacifism. Let me read Romans 8 as a prayer. Dear Lord, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.